You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. CyberOps, a company fighting in the Caucasus. Iranian threat group exploits zero login in the wild. The Kraken gets unleashed in Southeast Asia, of all places. Emotet is back, and it's after state and local governments. The U.S. House identifies the four horsemen of Silicon Valley. Monero gains criminal market share. The U.S. Comptroller of Currency moves for clarity in altcoin regulation. Joe Kerrigan takes a look at ransomware trends. Our guest is Matthew Newfield from Unisys with remote school safety tips for students and parents and a cyber attack from Waikiki. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. Lethal kinetic warfare now carries with it inevitable cyber operations as combat support. Fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh continues. It's increasingly accompanied by supporting cyber operations. Cisco's Talos unit finds that an unspecified threat actor, probably a foreign espionage service, is deploying poet rat malware against government and civil targets in Azerbaijan, often through phishing campaigns themed to take advantage of the ongoing conflict. That foreign intelligence service need not belong to Armenia. Many governments in the region are interested in the conflict. Both Turkey and Russia, for example, are closely concerned with the fighting. Microsoft has identified active exploitation of the zero-logon vulnerability, CVE-2020-1472, by the Iranian threat group Redmond Tracks as Mercury, but which is more generally known as Muddy Water. The attacks began after public disclosure of a zero-logon proof-of-concept, ZDNet reports. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency directed in Emergency Directive 20-04, issued on September 18th, that all U.S. federal agencies patch zero-logon, giving them three days to complete patching and report compliance. The attacks appear to have begun some days after CISA's deadline expired. Researchers at security firm Malwarebytes have blogged an account of what they've learned about Kraken, a fileless attack mounted by an advanced persistent threat group. Kraken, which is for the most part spread by phishing, often with workers' compensation fishbait, injects its payload into the Windows error reporting service, the better to evade defenses. It's not an entirely novel technique, but it does seem new with respect to this particular threat group. 
Exactly who that threat group is remains murky, but Malwarebytes sees signs that it may be APT-32, a Vietnamese espionage outfit that's used similar tactics and tools, and that has been most interested in regional targets, including those in the Philippines, Laos, and Cambodia. CISA yesterday issued another warning to the effect that the long-familiar Emotet Trojan is not only back, but back in a big way. Its principal targets, the ones CISA is concerned about anyway, are U.S. state and local governments. Emotet has come and gone. It went quietly in February, returned from five months' occultation in July, and began to appear in attacks against state and local governments in August. It's also a problem of international scope. As CISA points out, quote, cyber agencies and researchers alerted the public of surges of Emotet, including compromises in Canada, France, Japan, New Zealand, Italy, and the Netherlands. Emotet botnets were observed dropping TrickBot to deliver ransomware payloads against some victims and QuackBot Trojans to stealing bank credentials and data from other targets. End quote. Senator Sherman, thou shouldest be living in this hour or something like that. The U.S. House has released the results of its antitrust inquiry into big tech. The subcommittee investigating concluded that Silicon Valley is a hive of monopoly on a scale not seen since the 19th century's Gilded Age. Quote, To put it simply, companies that once were scrappy underdog startups that challenged the status quo have become the kinds of monopolies we last saw in the era of oil barons and railroad tycoons. End quote. Google's parent, Alphabet, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon are singled out as the new robber barons. 150 years ago, it was Stanford, Hopkins, Huntington, and Crocker. Nowadays, it's apparently Pichai, Cook, Zuckerberg, and Bezos. The harsh report is largely reflective of the subcommittee's Democratic majority. The Republican members, while hardly carrying water for big tech, really aren't entirely on board. The report so far hasn't affected the stock market, where, seeking alpha reports, the companies mentioned in dispatches seem to be holding steady. Digital Shadows finds that Monero is taking market share from Bitcoin as the preferred cryptocurrency of criminals, extortionists, and dealers in contraband. In general, what the criminal customers want in currency are accessibility, usability, and anonymity. The attractiveness of those three qualities tends to vary with circumstances, prominently figuring in which is the extent to which the gangs feel the heat is on. As recent criminal cases have shown, while Bitcoin and Monero are both appealing because they're relatively more difficult to trace, they can, in fact, be traced with the right application of effort and technology. So, while both leading alternative currencies are imperfectly anonymous, Monero is generally thought to be better to have the edge. In any case, it seems to enjoy a lower profile in the glare of law enforcement. From stories like this, it's easy to get the impression that altcoin is inherently shady and that the only people interested in cryptocurrencies are get-rich-quick tinhorns, black marketeers, pump-and-dump artists, and so on. But that's not at all true, and we wouldn't want to leave you with that impression. In fact, they're maturing as legitimate financial instruments and are growing into a mature regulatory framework. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, hoping to ease financial institutions' leeriness of cryptocurrencies, has issued interpretive letters designed, the Wall Street Journal says, to provide some clarity with respect to regulation. 
The OCC hopes, according to the journal, to avoid the mistake that's hobbled adoption of new technologies in the past, reliance on the most conservative possible interpretation of law and regulation. So you thought Waikiki was all sand, sun, surf, and island relaxation, didn't you? It seems that a gentleman who was arrested in May for carrying ammunition illegally to a Black Lives Matter protest, one Christian Grado, is again in hot water with the law for mounting a denial-of-service campaign against the Honolulu Police Department. Hawaii News Now reports that his public defender says Mr. Grado isn't dangerous and... Maybe he's not, but the Honolulu prosecutors disagree. Dangerous or not, his LinkedIn profile shows something of a Renaissance man, current dance instructor, former U.S. Army mortar platoon leader, West Point graduate, and so on. What he was doing carrying ammo to a protest isn't clear, but give him an A for initiative. He set up a GoFundMe campaign to stake him bail when he was scooped up by the police in May. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. If you've got school-aged kids, there's a good chance they are either learning at home or spending a lot less time at school than they used to. That new reality is proving challenging to many parents, logistically, for sure, but there are security issues as well. Matthew Newfield is Corporate Information Security Officer at Unisys, as well as a board member of the National Technology Security Coalition. 
He joins us with remote school safety tips for students and parents. So one of the things we recommend is you have to differentiate work and play. This is something I think a lot of parents are not doing when it comes to cyber um, and technology early enough in a child's life so that it becomes really like muscle memory for them. Most people, when they go into the corporate world, they have to adhere to that acceptable use policy that a lot of us have heard of or even written for corporations. And teaching a child at a young age that there is a difference between what you can do on a computer for school and what you can do on a computer for fun are different. So let's focus on for school. And I recommend one of two things, depending on the situation that you're in. If you're fortunate enough to have multiple machines, let's say they, your child has their own laptop or desktop and the school provides one for them to use, explaining to your child that when they're on the device for school, it is for school purposes only. There's no social media, there's no video games, there's no internet surfing. None of that can happen while you're on that device. And when you're on your personal device, while you can surf and maybe do the things you authorize them to do, there's no schoolwork. And that's a foundation. Do you have any uh, advice for working with folks who may feel a little overwhelmed with this? I'm thinking about you know, parents in particular who may not be that technically savvy, and they're faced with the challenge of, of securing these devices, their home network, and, and uh, looking out for their kids all at the same time. It, it may be new ground for them. Not only is it new ground, but it can be massively overwhelming. And we get that. I get that. A lot of us in the cyber community get that. And we're here to help. We're doing things like this and having these conversations to try to educate people on what they should be doing. And there are a lot of online resources. If you think about the companies that you've bought services from, your home internet Going to their official website and looking for their guides on how do you lock down their security guides or how do you harden the devices you bought is a good start. And doing some basic research online of good cyber hygiene for the home is key. And then understanding that they're not at it alone. There are enough of us in this community. We want to help. So reach out to me, to others, to people you may know in this field, and ask for assistance. There are no dumb questions here. And to your point, this is new ground. None of us have been dealing with this full-time school from home before. So ask people who at least have the basic understanding of cybersecurity methodologies what they should do. That's Matthew Newfield from Unisys. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. 
That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, Interesting article caught my eye. This is from ZDNet uh, from Steve Ranger. It's titled Ransomware. Gangs are shifting targets and upping their ransom demands. Uh, Give us the skinny here, Joe. What's going on? This is coming from IBM X-Force, which is their incident response team. And IBM has said their responses to ransomware attacks have tripled from the last quarter to the previous quarter. And I don't know if that's because ransomware is on the rise. It's probably a combination of these factors. Ransomware is on the rise, and IBM is probably good at responding to these things, so their sales are going up as well. Mm. Uh, but tripling is is pretty good. I, that can't all be just because IBM is making more sales. This is actually right. because the crimes are becoming committed at a higher rate. The biggest three industries they target are manufacturing, and get, they get hit by 25% of the ransomware attacks that IBM responds to. Uh, professional services and government. And these are organizations with low tolerances for downtime. Um, If you think back to the Baltimore ransomware attack and the chaos that that uh, worked on that city because of the downtime, it was, it's, it's devastating. It's, it's tough. Um, IBM has seen the trend where these ransomware attacks are also becoming data breaches. And they're saying, we're going to, we're going to sell your data on the, on the black market. And when their data gets sold, IBM is reporting that they've seen prices ranging from $5,000 to $20 million as a sale price Hmm. uh, for a company's data. Hmm. So Dino Kibi is the ransomware group responsible for at least a third of the incidents that IBM responds to. And IBM estimates that Sadina Kibi has victimized about 140 organizations with about a third of them paying up. And that makes their revenue at about at least... $81 $81 million. That's how much Sedino Kibi has made with ransomware. So that's hmm. that's really why they do this, right? There's $81 million to be had. Talking about real money. Right, exactly. This is not small potatoes anymore. Uh, they are getting more sophisticated about how they calculate their ransom requests, which is smart, right? I talk about how all of this is an economic situation. This is There are economic forces at work, and their requests range from 0.08% to about 9.1% of the victim company's annual revenue. And those dollar amounts range from 1500 to 42 million, depending on what your annual revenue is and where you fall in that percentage spectrum. I guess the 1500 incident is probably somebody who runs a small business who got hit by it. Um, and what do you do if you're a small business who gets hit by ransomware? Your best bet is probably just to pay up, right? $1,500, it's not that big of a deal. You don't have a, the resources to have a security response team come in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, Probably not going to put you out of business. Probably not going to put you out of business, but losing your data may very well do that. So it's kind of right. a, an easy decision. But $42 million is a pretty big ransom to pay. Uh, and even if that's high on the spectrum of uh, of percentages of annual revenue. I mean, 10% of annual revenue is not going to be payable by a lot of companies uh, unless mm-hmm. they have a big stockpile of cash. Uh, revenue is way more than, than dis- the disposable cash that a company has on hand. Yeah, well, and some of these are getting paid by insurance companies, right? Yeah, some of them probably are getting paid by insurance companies. That's right. Yep. And yeah. uh, you know, maybe they're offloading that risk to the insurance company and, and they're helping out. 
Yeah, it's interesting to me with this continued sort of uh, professionalization of ransomware um, and it, it's its place in the ecosystem, if you will, as people are grow accustomed to it. Insurance companies have policies for it. You know, businesses yeah. have plans against it to deal with it. Um, doesn't seem like it's going anywhere anytime soon. No, it doesn't. And Caleb Barlow on a an upcoming episode of the of uh, Hacking Humans talks about this and and talks about the possibility of outlawing payments, and we discussed that a little bit and what kind of impact that would have. If if it became illegal to pay a ransom, if there was a law that said you, you're subject to more fines uh, and you're also maybe subject to prison time for doing this, I think that might have an impact on it. I'm not saying that we should definitely do that right now, but I think it's definitely time to have this conversation. Hmm. All right. Well, the article, again, is titled Ransomware. Gangs are shifting targets and upping their ransom demands. That's over on ZDNet. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time, keep you informed, and it will get its peanut butter in your chocolate. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Dina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.